Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Paris Anand, Chief Investment Officer for Asia Pacific at Fidelity International. And in this podcast, we're looking at the recent wave of regulatory action in China and what it means for investors and the rest of the world. Regulation in China is nothing new. In fact, China pioneered the national administrative bureaucracy more than 2,000 years ago. But anyone observing the financial headlines in recent years and certainly over recent months will have noted a real pickup in regulatory activity that has affected some of China's biggest and most dynamic companies. Consumer internet firms, property developers and even after-school tuition businesses are just a few of the sectors that have been targeted over the past year. One driving force behind all of this is what President Xi Jinping has said is a goal of achieving common prosperity and narrowing the wealth gap. But for global investors, this recent spate of regulatory interventions has clearly come as a surprise, and we've seen an increased volatility in China's markets. Some are even questioning whether the broader China investment story still remains intact. So how should investors think about this regulatory new normal? What does it say about the future of entrepreneurial innovation in China or the role of the state in shaping corporate development? Which sectors align with the country's new strategic goals and ultimately stand to benefit? And how is all of this likely to impact the quality and quantity of economic growth in the world's second biggest economy? Guiding us through this topic today, we have two of Fidelity's Hong Kong-based investment team, Dell Nichols, a portfolio manager with a focus on China, and Asia Fixed Income Investment Director, Vanessa Chan. Hi, Paris. Great to be here. Hello, everyone. Welcome to you both. Let's get straight to it. Looking at this recent wave of regulatory action, some critics have said that policymakers in China are staging a war on innovation and free enterprise. Dale, Vanessa, do you agree? How damaged is the China investment case? For my end, indeed, policy is actually nothing new when it comes to China, particularly on the property sector. Depends on how you wanted to look through number of cycles. For property, you probably have seen four to five cycle for the past decade. And this coming one probably will be the fifth or sixth, depends on how you want to count it. We need to remind ourselves the regulations here are not intent to sabotage the sector, but to aim to manage the risk and aiming for a longer term and more stable growth for the sector as well as for the economy. There are the three red line policies in place, which ultimately wanted to kind of ring in the excess leverage that we have seen in the sector and to some extent some of the property developers. And ultimately, it's still aiming for stable, sustainable growth. And the real intention here is to ensure that the houses are for living, but not for speculation as well. Paris, I think it's important to keep the long-term perspective here. And I think about that looking back at previous regulation and sort of regulatory cycles and the long-term goals. And I do think it's important to to focus on those long-term goals because they're written down, they're in five-year plans and longer-term plans. And obviously, you know, China has a pretty good track record of hitting those long-term goals. And the goals, you know, do center around economic growth. There's pretty ambitious targets there, obviously, of doubling GDP per capita again, but also, you know, pretty significant goals around innovation. So, again, looking at things over the long term, we've had these regulatory cycles before. Clearly, I've got to admit, this is sort of the longest and deepest that we've seen. But at the same time, I think it's important to keep those long-term goals in perspective. We can delve into each of the policy measures 
I do think there's an element of catch-up in terms of implementing some of the policies, particularly around you know, the anti-competitive and anti-monopoly types of policies, and also around data security. Another element is clearly around the social element. Clearly, this is a focus on reducing social inequality, and in many cases, these are challenges that the countries are facing globally. Many of these cases actually, I think, bolster the, you know, the core investment case around consumption. You know, one of the major things we're focused on as a theme in China is the development of the middle class. I really don't think that these policies really sort of derail that basic core thesis around the development of the, of the middle class over the midterm. Vanessa, just going back to you for a second, I mean, when we see Evergrande, which is obviously one of the country's largest property developers, teetering on the brink of insolvency, what does that tell you about the risks that policymakers are trying to balance in terms of getting this economic strategy right? I think we need to kind of take a step back other than just thinking about Evergrande. We need to kind of compare what Evergrande is going through also on the policy front, because since China come out being the uh, first in first out under COVID, they have been a little bit more careful about the fiscal and monetary policy. Arguably, since the beginning of the year, China has actually went through a sort of monetary, fiscal and regulatory tightening all at the same time. And I think what it actually illustrated is the Chinese government determination and intention to actually have more tolerance towards potentially some credit events that's happening into the market. Under the current property regulating environment, companies that have high leverage, weak cash flows, lack of access to funding, pretty much kind of fit into what Evergrande is, will likely to be tested. And I think what you're likely to see for the coming few months is that there will still be volatility, there will potentially be aggressive pricing actions, particularly on some of the weaker names as well. So I think ultimately, policies aside, it, it kind of coming back to looking at the fundamentals of this credit and how these companies managing their financial profile as well. Paris, could I just come in? I don't want to gloss over over the you know, potential impact on some of the sectors. Clearly, that you know some sectors will be impacted. Areas like education, the tutoring sector is obviously you know significantly impacted. We follow these policies closely. The analysts are very focused on it. In some cases, we have to you know adjust our rate of monetization in in certain sectors and we factor in extra costs. But I sort of come back to the core thesis. I don't think has really changed. Thanks, Dale. Now, as well as real estate, which we'll come back to later, consumer internet companies like Alibaba and Tencent have been in the headlines of late. But just how different is internet regulation in China compared with the rest of the world? Asia editor Neil Goff has been speaking with Tina Tian, an analyst and portfolio manager in Hong Kong, and Toronto-based equity analyst David Cochran to find out. China isn't the only place where regulators are tightening. It's clear that everyone from Beijing to Brussels to Washington is keeping a closer eye on the tech sector generally and consumer internet companies specifically. The laws and approach to enforcement might differ widely between countries and jurisdictions, but it's increasingly clear that things like antitrust and data privacy are at the top of the regulatory agenda globally. David, you cover Silicon Valley. What are the latest trends you're seeing in the U.S. when it comes to regulating global internet giants like Facebook, for example? Each of the U.S. internet companies have their own issues. But for Facebook specifically, two things I want to touch on are acquisitions and content moderation. So for acquisitions, regulators are focused on their acquisitions of Instagram in 2012 and WhatsApp in 2014. And the argument is that 
hey, these acquisitions were actually done to squash potential competition and help Facebook gain a monopoly position. And it's a really tough issue because it's hard to exactly define the market of social media and social networking. And it's hard to determine if Facebook does in fact have a monopoly. And the other key issue around content moderation has flared up again. Facebook underwent a lot of scrutiny in the wake of the Cambridge Analytica scandal, and they made significant investments in improving their content moderation. But they're back in the news again due to a whistleblower who is arguing that, hey, Facebook actually wants polarizing content on the platform and that they're not doing enough to prevent negative mental health outcomes uh, resulting from use of the platform. So content moderation and potential monopoly concerns in the crosshairs in the US. Tina, in China, what is it that regulators there are looking at? How different are their underlying concerns or what is it that they're trying to accomplish? So from my perspective, I think there are a few things um, sort of from the top down level that the Chinese regulators are really looking at and trying to accomplish. The first one is to tackle the wealth or income inequality to achieve the so-called common prosperity. So why is that? In fact, in China, we're seeing the wealth gap has been widening. Now, 10% of Chinese families actually control 70% of the wealth. And the situation has really worsened after COVID. So the government looking at the internet sector and think, you know, the competition is probably being suppressed because some of the larger players are having monopolistic positions. So they're trying to promote fair competition, preventing monopolistic behavior um, such that smaller players can also prosper. So again, you know, income inequality and common prosperity. That's the first priority on government's agenda. And secondly, it's about security. Why? We're seeing you know, geopolitical tensions between China and the U.S. So there's an urgency in the government perspective that we need to protect the national security, which is not just physical security, but also virtual data security. That's why we're seeing a lot of regulations and rules regarding you know, protecting the important data and, and people's data privacy, etc. And the third thing is about stability. Again, in the backdrop of the, all the geopolitical tensions, the stability of the economy and the society is extremely important, especially when it comes to financial stability. So the government is trying to prevent systemic risks. And that's why we're seeing you know, the regulations on fintech involving Ant, for example. Great. And then what about in the U.S., David, especially when it comes to leveling the playing field? I know you've been looking closely at recent regulatory cases involving Google and Amazon. What is it that you're seeing there? Yeah, a common thread that regulators are focused on with Google and Amazon is those platforms promoting their own offerings or competing against other businesses who access their customers through Google and Amazon. So for instance, for Amazon, I could open up a third-party store on the Amazon marketplace and sell something like a USB cable. But Amazon could offer a competitive brand of USB cables that they buy, hold as inventory, resell like a traditional retailer. Or they could even offer their own private label brand of USB that competes against my little store. 
Okay, so Tina, last question to you. What does all this mean for the future of the internet in China and, and for these companies that, you know, up to now have been seen pretty much as, as homegrown champions of innovation? Right. So first of all, um, all these regulations would mean higher compliance costs for everybody. So there will be systems and headcounts um, need to be put in place to make sure full compliance with all these new regulations. And I think the larger companies will be affected more. So as we discussed, there are a lot of regulations around the monopolistic behavior, promoting fair competition, and the larger companies have really grown into a size that could potentially suppress competition efficiency gains. So these policies are really meant to encourage more competition and help the smaller players. On the other hand, on the point of innovation, I actually think you know, companies will continue to adapt and innovate more. So while in the past, the larger companies could still leverage their dominant market positions to retain business, now they would need to innovate more, offering better services and business models to retain customers and grow businesses. Eventually, if the Chinese government is successful in tackling the wealth and income inequality, the demand for the internet services will continue to grow. So not an end to innovation by any means, it sounds like. Thank you very much, Tina and David. That's all the time we have. Awesome. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Neil Goff there speaking with David Cochran and Tina Tian. Dale, you're a longtime investor in the internet space in China. Given the step down in valuations, are you starting to see opportunities emerge? Yes, absolutely. I mean, we've seen a significant correction in the stocks. And when we sort of look at the valuations now from an historical perspective, we're kind of at historical lows. And I think you can argue that if we, you know, we think about these valuations versus global peers, you know, the, the gap is even wider. So if you look at something like Alibaba now, if you factor out their investments in cash on forward earnings, you're probably at sort of a low teens type multiple. But that includes the cloud business, which has great long-term potential, but is actually still loss-making. So if you factor that out, it's actually not too hard to get to a, a kind of single-digit multiple on the core e-commerce business in China for you know, a, a company that is, is clearly a dominant player with you know, 60% or so type of market share and a very, very strong and established business model. So I think there's definitely opportunity emerging here. Obviously, sentiment is really weak, but you know, oftentimes that's the most opportune time. Uh, maybe I can add on, on the bond side. Actually, the Chinese internet company's bond performance have been quite resilient, pretty much due to the strong financial profile of this company, good cash generation, and also that provide a cushion against any potential downgrades as well. And Dale, just coming back to you and stepping back a little bit, how do these regulatory actions align with China's bigger project to liberalize its financial markets and make them more accessible to foreign investors? Many are interpreting some of these measures, as I said in the introduction, as making China less friendly for, for global investors. But is reform still on track? Yeah, I think, you know, the whole financial space is one area where the reforms have generally continued and you haven't seen any real big step back in that area. And it sort of, again, aligns with that long term goal of internationalizing the RMB and just generally sort of developing the capital markets over time. So if you look at the way the quotas have expanded in terms of cross-connect between Hong Kong and the mainland, that continues. 
I think the fact that we've got a share market futures starting up in Hong Kong this month, I think is also a positive step and will help foreign investors hedge when they invest in the a share market. So I think in the financial space, the direction is still very much about opening up over the midterm. Thank you, Dale. And, and Vanessa, you were telling me earlier about the recently announced Bond Connect Mutual Market Share Access Scheme. Can you explain a little bit more about what that is and what opportunities you see there? Yes. Actually, Bond Connect was launched back in July 2017, which is kind of after what Stock Connect was launched. The northbound at that point was trying to allow institutional investors from the overseas market to have a simplified way to access to the onshore China bond market. Recently, in the end of September this year, uh, the southbound is also open. So now the China domestic institutional investors through the South Bond Connect can actually invest in the offshore bonds in Hong Kong. What it really entails is continue to enhance the capital flow between mainland China as well as Hong Kong and the international investor base as well. I also really want to talk about what we've seen in currency markets, because one of the things that you could normally expect to happen when we hit one of these air pockets in markets is a devaluation of the currency. But that's actually not what we've seen this time around. So I'd really love to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I agree completely. It is interesting how well the currency has held up during this period. And it shows the progress that's been made over time in terms of the development of markets. I think you know, that long-term story about capital flow into China through both the equity side and the bond side is probably helping support that. Vanessa, if I just turn to you, I mean, we're living in a world where if we look at sort of bond markets globally, yield and diversification are scarce. And how do you think about factoring this into your perspective on long-term capital flows? I think what we have been seeing is a continuous interest for foreign investors thinking of uh, the China onshore bond market, particularly on the uh, China government bonds front, because by adding Chinese government bonds into a aggregated diversified portfolio, regardless of whether you're looking at an equity or fixed income portfolio, it can potentially add diversification, lower the volatility of the portfolio. And at the same time, um, the Chinese government bond actually offer about 3% yield in terms of local currencies. So what we've seen is uh, foreign participation in the onshore uh, CGB markets have increased from about 2% back in 2014 to 8% in 2018 and getting to about 12 13% in 2021. We continue to see foreign investors' interest in this particular market going forward as well. And obviously, we touched on uh, Evergrande earlier, but you know, clearly it's one of those stories that's really been dominating headlines over recent weeks. So how should we be thinking about everything that's been going on surrounding Evergrande? Investment Director Catherine Young caught up with Ming Gong earlier this week, a senior credit analyst and portfolio manager with a focus on real estate. Hi Ming, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello. So here we are on Hong Kong's Victoria Harbour waterfront, looking up at the city's iconic skyline. Now, one of the skyscrapers that really stands out today is the China Evergrande Center, a giant rectangle of glass with a huge LED sign on its roof. But of course, this is a troubled Chinese real estate developer's Hong Kong headquarters. And the company recently put it up for sale, along with a host of other assets. But before we really dig into the whole Evergrande situation, let's go back a bit. What's been specifically going on in terms of regulation when it comes to the real estate sector over, let's say, the past year or so? Sure. 
if we go back to the second half of 2020, there was a big rebound in property sales. That was against the backdrop of easy monitoring policy uh, that's being rolled out to state off uh, economic slowdown amidst the COVID-19 pandemic. After the strong rebound, the government wanted to cool down the property market. And in order to do that, they've rolled out a series of tightening measures over the past year. So you have three red lines imposed on developers to rein in developers' leverage ratios. And then you also have two red lines imposed on banks in order to control their overall exposures to the property sector. And uh, at the beginning of this year, a centralized land supply was also being rolled out in order to control and lower uh, the land cost. Ming, we often talk about the property sector being the backbone of the Chinese economy. Is this your view? Yes, I think China property is a significant pillar of uh, the, the country's economy. It accounts for about 15% of GDP directly or 25% indirectly. It is also a significant source of the government's revenue with about 40% contribution. The property sector is also closely entwined with the financial system as close to 30% of bank loans are property related. And that's why I think the government is determined to maintain a healthy and sustainable development of the property sector. So given all this, let's now focus on Evergrande because you know, how big are they in the context of those numbers you just mentioned and how leveraged are they? Like what, what's the big risk here for them? Sure, I'll try to address the second question first. In terms of leverage, if we look at net gearing, which is net debt over equity, it was 153% as of end of 2020, which is one of the highest amount developers that we cover and it's also way above the regulatory limit of 100%. Now, in terms of Evergrande's systematic significance, if you look at operational scale, definitely Evergrande was one of uh, major developers ranked second by sales nationwide, but it's a big market. Evergrande's market share is less than 5%. Alternatively, we can look at Evergrande's total outstanding bank loans. It was only 0.1% uh, of system loans. So on a standalone basis, Evergrande is not meaningful enough to cause systematic risk. But if we take into consideration of about RMB $1 trillion owed to Evergrande's home buyers, bondholders, and suppliers, you know, in a case of disorderly wind down, um, it is likely to cause a ripple effect into the system and could potentially lead to, you know, hard to control downward spirals for the system. So Ming, you know, this ripple you talk about, how do you think policymakers will try to contain the fallout? And, and also, outside of Evergrande, will we see some kind of broader policy support for the housing sector? I think Evergrande is still a fast-evolving situation, and it remains to be seen how the government's involvement is going to be, if at all, to manage the process. My base case is a government-led restructuring to maintain uh, social and financial stability. It probably will entail something like um, government intervention on um, project completion and asset disposal to meet the social obligation first, and then the government coordination among creditors to potentially form holistic workout plan. In terms of the policy outlook, I think tightening stance towards the property sector is unlikely to be reversed anytime soon. 
but fine-tuning is possible in the near term. As both property and land sales continue to slow down, I think it's reasonable to expect some level of policy normalization in the form of faster mortgage release uh, for the later part of this year. Thank you so much, Ming, for sharing all your thoughts with us today. Thank you. Ming Gong there talking to Catherine Young outside the Evergrande building in Hong Kong about the important role that property plays in the Chinese economy. Vanessa, just coming to you first of all with a question that we're getting asked a lot, which is, are there further potential Evergrandes out there? Yes, there could be. Why? Because there are actually thousands of property developers in China. So there are mostly smaller scales, more local base, lack of operational leverage and financial flexibility. These kind of what smaller company will be tested, but probably won't in time the same kind of scale as um, Evergrande. Yet under the current regulatory tightening environment, the property companies which have high leverage, weak cash flows, lack of access to diverse funding will be tested. I.e. if you're weaker credit, you will need to pay higher cost of capital and there could potentially be a higher chance of credit events. Yet this could be a good opportunity for potential increase of industry consolidation. Given the current uh, spread differentiation and dispersion, I think credit selection is becoming extremely important. Coming through the details of these credits, which you have heard from our property analyst Ming earlier, will be very important when we make our investment decision. And obviously, Dale, we touched earlier on this idea that perhaps the worst of the regulatory tightening around the internet sector might be behind us. Do you think that's also true in real estate and obviously the other industries that kind of depend on it? You've heard Vanessa talk about sort of the pressure that the sector is under currently. So I actually think, you know, in the property sector, at least in the short term, you're actually going to see more regulatory loosening to help support the sector. With regard to the broader sector in terms of suppliers and that sort of thing, I do think you need to be quite diligent in your sort of analysis of the receivables of a lot of these companies, really understand where the exposures lie. And and I'd say the team, I think, has done a great job of really monitoring this. But similar to the story around the developers, I think there's a really strong story of consolidation in this sector as well, whether it be paint or sort of waterproofing materials, all those types of sectors. This will only help drive that sort of longer term story around consolidation in, in those sectors. One point that I sort of want to come on to is, which again kind of highlights the balancing act that, that policymakers are trying to sort of tread as they sort of pursue this, this strategy, is that we obviously know that, you know, for the real estate market, land sales are very important to the finances of local government in China. So is this wave of tightening, is this going to impact the government's fiscal outlook, Vanessa? Okay, so broadly speaking, about 40% of the local government's uh, revenue actually come from land-related activities. So slower land sales, slower property sales could potentially impact the local government financing. What some local government potentially need to look at is some special local government bonds issuances or trying to broaden the tax regime so that they can balance the local government spending with the kind of decrease of revenue that they get from land-related activities. I'd like to sort of just move us on a little bit to kind of looking forward, you know, given we discussed a lot what has been shaping the current environment. But if you if you look ahead, I mean, let's start with, again, with the fixed income markets. I mean, Vanessa, what kind of bond issuance trends can we see already or do we expect to see over the coming quarters? 
I think towards the end of the year, generally there's a seasonality element where the new issuances will start to tell off. So looking over in 2021, the new issuances among will probably be around 300 billion US dollars, which is similar to previous year. However, there's definitely a drop in terms of new issuances in the high yield space. Looking ahead, we do expect the property high yield space issuance to be kind of further dropping in 2022. Hopefully for the first quarter in 2022, new issuances will pick up, particularly on the IG side. Uh, it will be slow in terms of the China property side if the sentiment continues to be weak. However, we do believe that the Asian issuances in the high yield space will potentially be a little bit more active as well. Thank you. And Dale, you, you talked earlier about the extent to which the focus on the cost of education, healthcare, property to the average household could actually support the long-term consumption story in China. Could you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think it should free up, you know, spending in in other areas. So I think, you know, overall, it does support that general story about the expansion of the middle class and their spending power. You know, we do spend a lot of time thinking about where that that spending can go. My mind would kind of naturally go to those sectors that the government is clearly trying to promote. So areas like sports is clearly an area of promotion, particularly ahead of, uh, of the Olympics. So I think that's an area of focus. The sector has, has actually done quite well. So it's not like there's any real bargains out there, but I think it's definitely another area that we can spend more time on focusing. But there's a broad range of areas that I think stand to benefit. And what about in the fixed income market? Any sort of areas that you're particularly um, drawn towards? I think green bonds, especially China, need to achieve carbon neutrality and also reduce carbon emission intensity. So there's definitely a push factor coming from China in terms of developing their green bond market. And the first step will probably uh, trying to align their green standard with the global standards. And the regulator have already updated the green bond catalog to ensure that they're closer alignment. So I think this particular area will probably be uh, having more issuances and investor interest going forward. Clearly, that focus on the environment applies to the equity sector as well. Obviously, you know, those areas that are very much aligned with the long-term goals that the government has, renewable energy, areas like EVs, and, and that sort of thing, is areas that we know are going to grow significantly over the midterm. So there'll be opportunities there. We're just trying to be very disciplined around valuation when we sort of look at the individual opportunities in that space also. So it's quite clear that we can see a, a degree of intention behind the Chinese authorities' uh, statement that you know, we are entering a new phase, a new growth uh, model for, for the country. You know, one that really tries to balance the opportunities with a focus on uh, trying to control potential existing and emerging risks in the economy, be that around leverage or be that around um, social and wealth inequality. And obviously, as we've talked about a lot on this podcast, that is a, a challenging uh, balance, a challenging line uh, to walk and has clearly caused a lot of volatility in the short term. But I feel for long-term investors, what we've heard is this represents a great opportunity, given that we not only will see a resumption in growth, but potentially a more stable and sustainable growth uh, for China over the coming years. So that brings us to the end of this episode. Thank you very much to my guests, Dale Nichols and Vanessa Chan. And to our other contributors, Tina Tian, David Cochran, Ming Gong, and Catherine Yong. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's been covered today, please go to our website, fidelityinternational.com. The producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff, with production support from Seb Morton Clark, Tommy Su, Keith Chun, and Alex Wilcox. The editor is Richard Edgar. 
Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.